the best reaction I've had for my book is not people in the CSR camp buying it and liking it, because they would have liked it anyway, but there are others more sceptical people, let's say they might work for hedge funds or private equity, who write to me and say, oh, I used to think that responsible business, that was all just sort of airy-fairy, singing kumbaya, but actually you bring a lot of data and evidence to that, so I do like that. What does keep me up at night um, is, is when I see just a lot of the polarised arguments, uh, maybe on LinkedIn, maybe on Twitter, maybe on in, in the media, where people just refuse to um, listen to other people's opinion. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. Alex Edmonds, a really warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Thanks very much, Mark. It's great to be here. You're the Professor of Finance at London Business School, and you're also of an author of the book called Grow the Pie. Um, Pieconomics, tell me about Pieconomics, because that's kind of what the book's about. Certainly, maybe a good place to start is what is the pie? So the pie is the value that a company creates. Notice that this is the total amount of social value. It's not just financial value, but it's the amount of total happiness or, or welfare that a company creates. And you can think about that pie as being divided between profits to investors and value to society. And often when people think about businesses becoming more responsible, they think about, well, should we split the pie differently? So should we reduce profits in order to pay higher wages or should we reduce profits in order to charge fairer prices to customers? And then similarly, if you're a CEO, many CEOs think about how to split the pie in their favour. So they might think, well, the way to maximise profits is to charge as much as I can get away with or to pay my workers as little as possible. So what is Pikeonomics? Pikeonomics argues that the relationship between business and society is not a zero-sum game. The pie is not fixed when a company chooses to invest in its workers or to become better stewards of the environment or to treat customers better. They're not just sacrificing profits, they're growing the pie, ultimately enhancing profits. For example, um, if you treat your workers better, they'll be more motivated and productive and more likely to stay, similarly with the environment and customers. So while there might be trade-offs in the short term, in the long term, a responsible company is not just being moral and ethical, it's being commercially savvy and boosting its long-term returns. And where did the idea for Pikeonomics and this... Um you know, theory come about? When when did it sort of hit you that this made a lot of sense? Actually, quite a long time ago. And that's surprising because you might think, well, responsibility, that's a pretty hot topic right now. Maybe I came up with it in the past year or so. But in fact, it was something I studied over 15 years ago when I was doing my PhD in finance at um, MIT Sloan. And it was based on my research. So if people hear my message of growing the pie, they might think, well, that sounds kind of like wishful thinking that you can increase both profits and purpose. But this was my research during my, my PhD. And what I specifically looked at was companies that treat their work as well. So why did I look at workers rather than let's say the environment or customers? It's because in nearly every industry, workers are the key asset. The environment clearly matters, but it might matter in energy more than it does in tech. So what I looked at in that research is, do companies that go above and beyond in how they treat their employees, do they perform better, or are they just fluffy companies who are distracted from the bottom line? 
So what I looked at was the list of the 100 best companies to work for in America. Those are companies that are absolutely in the top tail of how they treat their workers. And I found that they beat their peers by 23 to 3.8% per year over a 28 year period. That's 89 to 184% compounded. So simply put, companies that were treating their workers well, yes, they were being humane, and yes, they were being good good um, corporate citizens, but they were also being business savvy, they were investing in their greatest asset, and so that's something which gave me a lot of ideas that actually the pie can be grown. And so why did I then write the book only recently, in 2020? is because this idea, to, to many economists and to many people who study research and data, is not hugely surprising that you can have these win-wins. But then when I look at the debate right now about business, it is so either-or, it's so black and white, so zero-sum. So there's people who stand up for business and they argue, oh, we should just exploit society. And then the others who are sort of more um, pro-society, they argue that business is evil, let's over-regulate them. And rather than having this them and us and mentality and this polarisation, I wanted to highlight that actually we are in it together. Business and society can be partners rather than enemies. Because you talk about pie-splitting mentality, and, and instead of splitting, you actually advocate for, for growing so everyone wins. Like you say, it's not an either-or choice. So shareholder value has been badged as something as a bit evil over companies who focus on purpose. But I, I love that you couch that as... Both can be important and you can have both if the pie is bigger. Yes, absolutely. Like any politician right now, uh, or to be fair, any finance professor right now who wants to become famous, how do they win a lot and get a lot of popularity? They will say, oh, let's get rid of shareholder value. Let's sort of move away from profit. Profits don't matter. And then you're seen as a massive reformer. You're saying, seen as somebody who, oh, prioritises people over profit. But why do you need to prioritise people over profit? Why can't you prioritise both? Because actually, a company that is investing its people, they will become more profitable in the long term. And so high profits is not something to be embarrassed by. The way that you make high profits, at least in the long term, is through treating and investing your workers, through making products that customers really want to buy, and also through being great stewards in, in the environment. And so what I wanted to give is much balance here, whereas it's really easy to, to, to be either in one camp or the other. And the more extreme that you are right now in, in this day and age, uh, unfortunately, uh, the more likes and the more popularity that, that you might get. Yeah. I spent a decade running a, a charitable foundation that was attached to a corporate. And they would get from time to time a fair amount of stick for um, the fact that they're you know, linked to uh, wealth and finance. But it's, it struck me, not only did they give away millions to good causes, but actually their real impact was creating employment. They were, they were based in a, in a relatively small city. It brought huge amount of spend to the to local area. You know, the, the, they treated their staff incredibly well. There was a real sense of purpose about what they're trying to do. And it, and it felt like on every level, uh, they were winners. And you, I imagine you've seen examples of that yourself. Absolutely. And, and all this positive impact on business is, is something which it's really easy to ignore because it's, again, very popular and, and very easy just to slam business. And a recent example was when Amazon was thinking about um, um, building their second headquarters in Queens in New York. And then you had um, Alexandra or, or, um, Ocasio-Cortez saying, oh, no, let's just oppose this. Amazon, this is a big, evil company. 
Um, let's try to um, make sure that they don't have their headquarters here. They're here. And then when Amazon pulled out, she said, oh, this is a massive victory for Queens. When it, when it wasn't, because Amazon would have provided a huge amount of jobs. And these were well-paying jobs. So a lot of these jobs were over six figures in terms of salary. That would have also regenerated the area. There's so many smaller businesses that benefit from a company being there. Let's say... Um, sandwich shops that they can get um, their lunch from or, or hairdressers or um, dry cleaners and so on. So that would have been a massive boost to the economy. She was claiming that, oh, the citizens of Queens won because Amazon lost, but everybody lost. So if you don't have this win-win transaction of a company coming to a locality, providing a lot of jobs and, and local environment and uh, employment and also having a catalytic effect on the, the local businesses, that, that's bad for everybody. Yeah, and I think with that example, I think it's it's a really compelling um, and, and in some ways tragic, really, for that local community. What is that? Someone who's uh, pandering? Is that someone who's actually going for the soundbite? Is that one of the risks of of kind of modern day capitalism that people will look at the headlines more, or they'll try and uh, engage people at that level? Yes, unfortunately it is, because um, nowadays, right, when you have this simple soundbite that you can tweet into 280 characters, then that's something that can go viral and be widely shared. If instead you were, so if you were to say, well, companies are evil, that's simple. If you instead gave the message, well, yes, there is some corporate access, but actually most companies when they're focused on the long term, do create a lot of wider value, then that is something which is much more nuanced and so it's less likely to get extreme support. Now, notice here that my, my defence of companies is absolutely not one-sided. I do recognise that there are some companies that extract huge amounts of value. So I start the book with the example of um, Turing Pharmaceuticals. They're a company that bought a drug for AIDS patients, the elderly and pregnant women, and they hike the price by 55 times. And so there are companies which are absolutely need to um, change how they are. But what I want to do is when I want to talk about companies, I don't want to make my view skewed by one or two hand-picked examples. I'd like to look at hundreds of companies across dozens of industries and see what happens in general. And based on all of that more careful research, rather than handpicking one or two examples, what it suggests is actually companies have a much more positive force in society. Now, still, we can change things, and the book is certainly not a defender of the status quo. I argue many things that companies can be doing better, but I would rather suggest working within the current system rather than throwing the baby without the bath with the bathwater and suggesting a, a, a large-scale radical change. And switching focus for a little bit, just taking you back to the beginning of your finance career. So first job for Chase Manhattan Bank and then on to Morgan Stanley. What was sort of going through your mind back then and what was the experience like? Yeah, so why did I study um, economics at university to begin with? Was it because, oh, this is something that can make me tons of money if I go to Morgan Stanley or Chase Manhattan? It sincerely and honestly, it wasn't. So why I did economics is I liked the balance of theory, but also opinion. So in England, you have to specialise very early. So when you finish school, you can only choose three or four subjects. And I chose maths, economics, English and German, which was quite unusual. Many people in my year did maths, physics, chemistry, so complete sciences. And other people did, say, English, history, um, French, so complete arts. And I did a mix of the two. 
And that's what I liked about economics, is on the one hand, you do have some theories, right? You have theories of trade, you have theories of inflation, theories of monetary policy, but unlike physics, those theories are not set in stone. So you and I, Mark, we could look at the same data, we could both be reasonable, intelligent people, and I could argue that taxes should be higher, and you could argue that taxes should be lower, and both of our opinions are, are, are learned and, and, and logical ones, but we can have differences of opinion. I found that really interesting. So the fact that you have theories, but it's not set in stone, that gives a lot of the richness and a lot of the intellectual debate. So that's why I studied economics at university. And then with economics, you can end up doing many things in, in a career. But what I liked about investment banking, yes, it is um, financially secure, but that's not the main reason, because you're doing this job 100 hours a week sometimes, so unless you love it, you're not going to survive there. But I felt that you were working on a company's large transactions, things that really affected the company's future. Management consulting is a great career, but that might be something more operational, like a company's marketing strategy for one particular product. But what you're doing with companies is you could end up merging two companies and creating a great one. For example, I know somebody who worked on the Astra Zeneca deal, where those two pharmaceuticals companies merged and became one, and that's now a, a real jewel in the crown of British industry. They made a um, coronavirus vaccine that I was lucky to get, and so what you can do is you can shape large industries. So I thought that was really exciting to be able to use your knowledge to, to, to make a profound impact on the future of business and the future of industries. And you love, you know, you clearly love, um, you know, thought. You, you've articulated some wonderful thoughts. What was it like growing up? What was the debate in the house like? Were your, did your parents encourage you to critique things, pull things apart, put them back together? I would actually mainly, so my, my parents were great in, in so many ways, um, and I'm, I'm so grateful for how they brought me up, but actually, I would credit this debate with the school that I went to when I was about seven years old. So this is a Montessori school, and the Montessori school system was how about how education should involve debate. So you would call your teachers by their first name, not by sir, as you would do in, in many other schools, and their view of education was, well, let's take the Latin root for the word education. It's educo, which means to lead out. So many people's approach to education is to thrust in. So you basically tell students what's right and then they, they learn this by rote. But education is where you actually just give hints and lead out the answer from the students. And so that's something which encourages the student to think for himself or herself rather than to follow some scripted curriculum. And so that sort of breadth and, and that, um, that, that love for debate and that, importantly, that respect for other people's opinions was something that I'm really grateful for. And so even when I will do some debates right now with people on heated topics like responsibility, I think the first place to start is by seeing, well, what's right about their argument rather than immediately assuming what's what uh, immediately assuming that they might be wrong. So one recent example is um, Tariq Fancy, who used to be the head of BlackRock Sustainable Investing Team. He launched this massive attack against sustainability, claiming that this entire industry um, was um, broken. And that led to a lot of defensiveness, people coming out and immediately thinking, oh, he must be wrong, and, and sort of having some ad hominem attacks saying maybe he was a failure at BlackRock and so he's writing this to get his own back. But I thought, well, no, the first place to start is to say, well, actually look at his arguments and see, well, are the arguments correct 
and forget about who's making them, let's just evaluate him on, on the logic. And I said, well, some of the comments that he's making here are actually quite right. Now, the others, here are things I will disagree with, but let me try to um, try to give him the benefit of the doubt, the doubt rather than being immediately reactive. And um, not only did I write my response to him, but also the Wall Street Journal invited us to do a debate and he kindly accepted a debate with me. Why? Perhaps because he knew that I was somebody who would um, be quite fair to him, even though I end up having a different opinion. And how do you find on a personal level when you, you know, take someone on, you, you argue their point, you do it very publicly, does that sit comfortably with you? Does it keep you up at night? Does it enthuse you? Does it excite you? What, what do you like on a sort of emotional level when you get involved in that? Yeah, so on an emotional level, what, what I really do like is, is in particular when people who might not be naturally aligned to my opinion actually say, ah, oh, I, I didn't think I would like listening to you, but in the end I, I realised that you made some valid points. So so what the, the, the best reaction I've had for my book is not people in the CSR camp buying it and liking it, because they would have liked it anyway, but there are others more sceptical people, let's say they might work for hedge funds or private equity, who write to me and say, oh, I used to think that responsible business, that was all just sort of airy-fairy, singing kumbaya, but actually you bring a lot of data and evidence to that, so I do like that. What does keep me up at night um, is, is when I see just a lot of the polarised arguments, uh, maybe on LinkedIn, maybe on Twitter, maybe on in, in the media, where people just refuse to um, listen to other people's opinions. So recently, the Wall Street Journal um, had a week-long series of articles um, about why ESG uh, might not actually be delivering what it promises to. So it was a critique of the ESG industry. And then um, some gentleman from Morningstar gave a post saying, this is total BS. So that, that's not even a um, professional way to reply to that. But because his response was so vitriolic, this got liked and shared by the ESG crowd who saw him as a hero for standing up to the evil Wall Street Journal. And that gets me up in the night, where how you get famous is by being completely dismissive of the other side and, and, and being frankly insulting. And, and, and sadly, we don't just see this in the debate about whether ESG adds value or not. We see this in, in politics. So some people who've been elected recently have been elected on, on campaigns of anger. If you look at, say, successful campaigns beyond just uh, voting for who's in charge, say the Brexit versus Remain campaign, um, I think both sides are to blame there. So yes, I think a lot of the Brexit arguments might not be fully based on, on evidence. But similarly, those who were in the Remain camp were very dismissive, claiming Brexiters were stupid or xenophobic and refusing to actually engage or hear what their concerns were. And that's why we ended up in with Brexit, which I believe is unfortunately going to be bad long term for both the UK and the European Union. And, and frankly speaking, maybe um, the, the globe. And you as an academic versus a practitioner, um, were you always destined to head towards uh, academia, or was was that in question when you were um, starting your career in finance? Absolutely not. I was never intending to be an academic. So, um, in the UK in particular, uh, to say that you're an academic sort of has people do a double take. They might think, well, is that because you have no social skills to be able to deal um, with the real world? So, it wasn't even on my radar screen. So, I thought, okay, with my um, degree in economics, I could go into banking, I could go into maybe consulting, I could maybe do a law conversion course. It wasn't that I even considered, I, I considered it, it was never on the radar screen. So I went into investment banking. But then when I was there, 
I realized that what I was working on, yes, it was transformational, but it was transformation to one company. So the first deal I did, it took me seven months. Yes, I made a, that made a huge difference to our client, a bank called Abbey National, but that was one company's problems uh, at that one time. Whereas if you write an academic paper, that could be timeless. For example, the link between purpose and profit, that's something that might apply to many companies and many industries. And so that's what led me to go into academia is to realize that the bandwidth and the timeliness of what you write might be much greater than what you see in um, what you might do in, um, in, in, in industry. And so I, I went to this completely different career. So grow the pie, just to focus on that for a little bit. I uh, purchased the audiobook. I've been really enjoying that. Um, it struck me that you recorded your own audiobook, which big respect because um, it was really good to hear from the author. Um, tell us about the whole process of writing the book. Did you find it difficult? Um, was it easier than you thought? And then just before you do that, I just want to say I love the examples. I love the real world examples that you chose. Uh, and that really brings it to life for me. Thanks so much, Mark. And actually, that, that was the, the main um, challenge for me when writing the book. So the book was based on the research that I had done for the prior 15 years. So it wasn't something that was just a flash in the pan. And, and, and to be, um, let me be fair, it was not just based on my research, but research based by, by many other academics, not just in finance, but other disciplines like strategy and marketing and organisational behaviour. So I wanted this, this to be cross-disciplinary. So I already knew all the research. Um, I didn't need to do any new primary research. But what I needed to do was to bring it to life with examples. So when you write an academic paper, you make sure that it's not driven by anecdotes. It's based on large-scale data. But regression coefficients and statistics, they don't make for an exciting book. So even if the paper finds yeah, that in general, responsible companies perform better, what you then need to do is to find an example that brings it to life. And so the exciting bit for me about writing the book um, was to find those examples. And I learned so much from doing so, because like now I give a lot of talks about purpose, and some of them are direct talks on the book. Others might not be, but just general talks about purpose. And now I have all of those examples to use in my talk. Like, I, I, I'm sort of shocked that I managed to give talks on this topic before writing the book, because I don't know what examples um, I, I used back then. The whole process of writing, um, I found just really enjoyable. Um, many people will have heard of this theme of flow, where when you're doing something, time just passes, you feel that you're in the zone. And that's what I felt like when I was working on the book. So before I st started it, I thought this is something that there's going to be such um, temptation to procrastinate. Books take two years to write. And so um, if I don't work on it this particular day, it's not going to have any impact because something is it's not going to um, see the finish line for two weeks to two years anyway. So there's less urgency. In contrast, it was the opposite. I loved writing so much that uh, actually I would just um, want to lock myself away and write it and, and not do my other duties as, as a professor um, or a researcher. So it was something that I actually had to carve out time for all the other stuff because I loved writing uh, and the writing process. And typically what time of the part of the day would you f focus the writing on and what did that look like? Uh, so I typically like to um, start right at the morning of, of the day. Why? Because my brain is particularly sharp then. So what I want to, what I would typically do is in the morning, I would do the um, writing, particularly if it's writing something from scratch. 
Um, then in the afternoon, where maybe you're a little bit more tired, when you're in food coma, I might do editing. So what I've written, then, I would sort of print it out or save it on my iPad and then mark it up because editing is a bit less um, cognitively intensive than writing for the first time. But when it's something which is the hardest, which I think writing from a blank sheet of paper, rather than editing that something which is already there, that's when you need to absolutely um, be sharp. And, and when you do that, you need to try to block out all distractions. So I would um, try to put on the internet blocker and, and, and things so to make sure that I could be completely in the zone and, and not always just responding to, to email. And what has the response been like? It, it sounds like it's been good and it's, it's meant that you've been invited to speak. And, but yeah, is, it, has it, is that a natural place for you on a stage? I know you've done some TED Talks. Does that promoting the book bit come naturally to you? Yes, I really enjoy the, um, this external aspect to it. And I enjoy not just talks, but also opportunities like this podcast. Because what do I find to be my own purpose... Um, it's the creation and dissemination of knowledge. So often as professors, we think about the creation of knowledge, doing the research. But I think if you just do the research and then it ends up in a paper which is stuck in a library somewhere, then you really haven't made any impact. So what I love doing is is not only doing the research and putting a lot of thought to it. So the book was two years and there was seven, 15 years of research before that, but then um, making this accessible to people. Um, so I really enjoyed all, all the talks that I've given and the, the, the challenge there is to make something that you spent two years writing accessible in maybe 15 minutes or half an hour and to make it sharp and engaging uh, and so I, I really appreciate anybody who's given me the opportunity to present that. And in terms of the reception, as, as I was saying, what I found really gratifying was the reception from people who might be um, most sceptical towards the idea of purpose, think that it's uh, fluffy and new age and so on, and then they realise that actually I come to this, not just with a few hand-picked examples or wishful thinking, but with a lot of data. And so that's where the reception, I think, has been most positive. Uh, in addition, what's been really gratifying is how it's been received around the world, because many people, when they write about responsible business, they think about, well, um, how do we change, let's say, US law to make companies more responsible? But this whole, all of the problems that we're thinking about, climate change, automation, inequality, they are global problems. Um, so the Korean publication came out last year, um, so there are companies which in their press releases say we are now adopting a economics model. So the fact that the ideas are now so mainstream that companies are referring to them is great. The Chinese translation is coming out uh, next month and then there's other translations in Arabic and French and Russian and Turkish and so forth. And so that has also been something which is really great. The fact that people are seeing this as something which applies not just in the UK and the US, but all around the world. And in terms of any negative reaction to what you say in the in public or or through the book, have you had have you had any um, you know dissent? And how do you deal with uh, haters? I haven't seen much or of any negative reaction. I think what the book has most suffered from is the lack of let's say positive momentum that it might have got if the book was really one sided. So there are other books on responsible business which argue that companies are completely evil, that all that ESG is a scam or things like that. And there you have had a lot of forward momentum there and people um, tweeting and, and sharing it. 
For my bit, because it's much more um, in the middle, yes, it recognises that companies need to serve wider society, but it also recognises that they need to provide a return for their investors. Um, um, that, that's something which, yes, there is a, a crowd which, which does like that, but they tend to be a bit less vocal than the ones who think that capitalism is completely evil or capitalism is the only thing that we, we should be able to think about. So it's not so much the negative momentum, but the lack of this forward momentum, the positive momentum that you would get if you were more extreme. And, you know, capitalism massively under fire, people looking for new ways of operating. Um, what's your thoughts on um, the future and, and do, you, do you feel positive about the future? And what's, or, or there's a lot of negativity about and has been a really difficult few years? Yeah, so I, I, I feel quite positive when you look at the evidence. So the evidence does suggest, yes, in the short term, you can become more profitable by extracting from society. So clearly, in the short term, the more I charge my customers, the more money I'll make, the less I pay my employees, the more money I make, and so on. But what my book is about is the long term, and what that suggests that in the long term, if you do that then your customers and employees will walk away. And in contrast, if you're a company that treats society well, then in the long term, you will become more profitable. So there is my hope there that you can actually be a business that creates value for society and also is a company that is, is profitable. So let's think about some of the most profitable companies today. Um, Apple, for example. Yeah, now Apple might not be a perfect company in every single dimension, but... Why is Apple the most valuable company in the world? It produces products that we could not be without. Like an iPhone, if you put an iPhone into the hands of somebody, particularly in a developing country, you change their life. You give them connectivity, you give them access to information, you give them access to financial, to, to banking and financial inclusion and so on. So many things that you can do with that. This is something we take for granted now, but let, let's say um, a few years ago, before we had that, then people's lives were, were far more difficult. We often talk about the stock market being so short-termist. What is another company which is not profitable, but really valuable? It is Tesla. And so that's a company which is, is, is trying to take climate change really seriously and make cars in the future to be something really different to the cars in Henry Ford's time. So we do have um, the market valuing companies that are addressing real social problems, not just being extractive of society, um, and so that the data makes me optimistic, but what makes me more pessimistic is that it's so easy for people just to ignore the large-scale data and handpick the one example of maybe one company that made money through exploiting society and then over-extrapolate from that. And how do you spend your spare time when you're not thinking through um, Pikeonomics and, and you uh, need some downtime um, or, or maybe you, you look to areas of life where you get inspiration from? But what does Alex do when he's doing that. Thanks so much for asking me about this because I do so many podcasts but they all focus on work rather than these other things. So there's three things I, I, I really like to do. So uh, one is I love sports and fitness and maybe I shouldn't get too meta about this but maybe this is linked to my, um, my academic work and that my academic work is all about um, making short-term sacrifices for long-term benefits. And I think investing in your mental and physical well-being is really important. And so I've done um, sports and athletics my entire life, but also it's something that I try to introduce to my students. So within my um, MBA students at London Business School, I, um, I'll try, I used to have a budget um, pre-pandemic where I could take them to Barry's Boot Camp, which is 
uh, this pretty brutal um, boutique fit fitness studio because I think it's useful to get them into good habits. So sports and fitness is one thing. The second thing I, I really like doing is, is music. Um, that's a very different part of your brain, but that's why I like it. It's restorative, it's more creative, um, rather than just being in numbers. And uh, third, I had a baby boy in December, and so spending time with him is, is an absolute joy. So those are the three things that are taking up my time right now. Yeah, uh, as a parent myself to four children, um, and those early years especially, like reading, digesting information, uh, writing is very difficult when you're sleep deprived. Um, are you disciplined? Do you find ways of coping with that? It is difficult in, in that when you write, you really need to be in this flow state that I mentioned earlier. So um, it's difficult to work when you have just, let's say, a half an hour chunk and then you need to take a break in another chunk. So with looking after a, a baby, uh, obviously they, they can demand your attention at any time and you can complete, you have to completely drop what you're doing and, and, and um, attend to their needs. Whereas if you contrast that with other demands, other demands, they might be pressing, but they might not be absolutely urgent. It could be that you um, leave them to the end of the day. And if I leave it to the end of the day, I might still have an unbroken chunk of four hours to, to work, but you can't do that. Um, with with a kid, but even though it doesn't give me the same unbroken time, it's uh, I I I wouldn't I would never change it. So, um, hope when he grows up, it, it may be that I I will be able to come up to, when he likes. We can take him to daycare. That would allow me to have some uh, more unbroken time. Um, but right now, I'm not able to have it. But I I think it's a price worth. Paying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we move towards wrapping up, in terms of people that you most admire, companies that you most admire. Is, is there anyone you'd want to take this opportunity to sort of shine a light on? And and, um, and then we'll we'll focus a bit more on how people can get hold of the book. Yeah, so I think in terms of people, um, one academic hero that I have is a gentleman, Raghu Rajan, who is a professor at the University of Chicago, who then became the governor of the Federal Reserve Bank of India. He also has written um, some very influential books. So what I like him is he started off as a really serious academic, writing the very best papers in the top journals. He, he still does that right now, but then now what he does is he applies that to real-world problems, such as setting monetary policy in India. So why I think that's great is that he is somebody who's trying to make sure that he doesn't just do um, nice academic work, but uses this to address real-world problems. But also, whenever he does anything which with policymakers, he makes sure that that's based on the very best academic research rather than just shooting from the hip and saying things which sound good or, or, or sound extreme. And in terms of investors, I might, I'm, I'm going to be biased here, but I'm going to give a, a shout out to um, Royal London Asset Management. So they are an asset management firm that, let's with, disclose myself fully here, I've been on their investment committee, advisory committee for, for six years. But through that, I've, I've worked with them and just seen how carefully they take sustainable investing. So they've been in this field for 18 years. So that's um, way before it became popular. So that suggests that that's something that they really care about. They really care about investing in a sustainable way rather than just going into this area because it's now a hot topic. And then because of that, they're able to look at things in a really nuanced way. So it's very easy for people to say, well, if you're a company, an investor that's trying to be responsible, you should never invest in anything linked to, let's say, the defence industry or alcohol or anything which might be to do with transport or so on. But they're saying, yes, these are industries which are problematic. 
But there are best-in-class companies here within these industries that we might still think it's responsible responsible to invest in. So, like, their nuance and balanced approach is something that I really admire, particularly in a world in which it's much easier to to win business and get good PR by being as one-sided as possible. And I think, really good point around, I would just thought then, as people have lost faith, especially during the pandemic and politicians, their faith is, has risen uh, in business leaders who um, have seen to be really stepping up. But I, I would argue that we, you know, our business alone can't solve the world's problems and it needs to be a uh, combined effort. Yes, I think it needs to be a combined effort between many, many parties. So first, yes, companies should be stepping up and companies should be um, in recognising their effect on wider society. But we also need governments here because the government sets the rules of the game. It's not enough for, let's say, um, a football referee to say, oh, players, you must play fairly. The referee must send people off if they commit um, dangerous tackles. Um, so I think the government's important. We also need investors. Why? Because a company might be really enlightened and think about long-term value, but if investors are focused on short-term profit and will kick out a CEO who doesn't deliver in the short term, then the CEO will have to themselves focus on the short term. So we need investors to have a a, a long-term mindset. I know that your prior guests on this podcast, people like Rob Gardner, that's absolutely their approach is to think about um, creating long-term value. And then um, finally... I think us as citizens, we can play a role. And I think this is really empowering because we think, well, companies are now so massive that I, as an ordinary person, can't really change things, but you can. So by what you choose to buy or choose not to buy, that can have a huge impact. And given social media, you can see the effect that boycotts might have on, say, Volkswagen or Uber. They can spread um, quite strongly. And so I think right now, citizens might have even more power than they did in the past to um, make sure that they are only buying from companies who's, who reflect their own values and they um, and and if the companies are very positive just to champion them and to, to tell other people about them um, because that's a way in which good deeds will, will become what widely known and maybe small companies who are doing things a little bit differently will be able to start a winning against the large competition. Yeah, totally agree. Um, Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, well done on the book. And um, as I said earlier in the podcast, um, really well done on uh, rec- the recording because I'm, I'm loving your voice. Uh, good to hear from the author. Um, how does someone get hold of it? Uh, they can obviously go to Audible, but how do they get hold of a physical copy? Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. So the book is called Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Uh, it will be available on, on Amazon or any um, regular bookstore. There's the um, hardback, which um, was released in March 2020. Then actually, let me instead talk about the paperback, because that came out in November. Not only is the paperback cheaper, but also I updated it significantly for the pandemic. So often paperbacks just come out one year after the handback and it's exactly the same. Here I actually updated it a huge amount because a lot happened after I published the handback. Um, so you can get that. There's also the Kindle or electronic versions uh, for those who, who prefer that format. And the electronic version is also updated for the paperback. So that is also a really up-to-date version. So anybody who's of interest, um, these, are, um, these, these are the ways of, of, of getting hold of it. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Mark, for having me on. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. 
please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing, because I sure do.